Well, let's review. So far in this series, we talked about Jesus the baby, and we talked about Jesus the man. As a baby, our Lord experienced human life from start to finish so that he could empathize with us on every level. He decided to empty himself and come down from heaven as a baby, demonstrating the ultimate in humility. But we should also never forget that this baby was worthy of worship, and he was worshiped. As the old carol says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Born as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Last week we called that as a real flesh and blood man, Jesus personified physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual strength. We also talked about his sensitivity to the human condition, the deeply compassionate, caring, often gentle heart of Jesus. Finally, we were amazed at the radical simplicity Jesus lived out, even as God on earth. All deity aside, Jesus was a man worth following. He was quite literally the greatest man to ever live. But Jesus was more than a baby and more than a man. Jesus was also the Christ. Jesus asked his disciples and he asks us all, who do you say that I am? That's the question we've been asking, seeking to answer this December, who is Jesus? Interestingly, this week as I waited in line at Rosar's, I saw this staring back at me. If you can read it, it's Life Magazine, Jesus, who do you say that I am? Apparently, the editors of Life Magazine heard about my sermon series, <laughs> wanted to kind of get in on that whole vibe, or maybe they, like me, thought that this might be a question that people are asking. Honestly, I think this question is always being asked all over the world more than we know more than we realize. Who is Jesus? What can we know from his titles? Has anyone ever had so many labels as Jesus? Is he a prophet, a priest, a king, the savior, the teacher, rabbi, the Lord, Messiah, God incarnate, the lion of Judah, son of man, son of David, or the bright and morning star? Is he Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Son of God, or Jesus Christ? Well, yes, he's all of that and more. It really can get a bit confusing, though, can it? I mean, for people who don't really know about all that, especially folks hear all of this, Jesus this and Jesus that, and sometimes maybe some of them are thinking, Jesus who? Probably most often we hear him called Jesus Christ. But maybe some are like, what, is, is Christ like his last name or something? Actually, Christ is a descriptive word. We would be more precise to call him Jesus the Christ. 
Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah, which basically means Savior. More literally, the word means anointed one or one who has been sent. This is a title that refers to the one who was promised by God throughout human history, the one who would come to save us from sin and ourselves. And we can find those promises in the Old Testament books of the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, God's prophets were always telling the people to expect the Christ. In fact, the very word Messiah or Christ is filled with expectation. This idea that the Savior would eventually come down from heaven gave the people hope in troubled times. Again, this is what the word Messiah, or in the Greek, Christ, means. Literally, the anointed one or the promised one, the one and only Savior who would be sent by God to save. 2,000 years ago, it happened. He came. Thank God he came. Merry Christmas. Now, the Hebrew word from which we get Jesus is Yeshua, which means the Lord is my salvation. That's literally what Jesus means. The Lord is my salvation. Now, watch this. When you put Jesus and Christ together, you most literally get the one God sent to be my Savior. That's literally what Jesus Christ means. The one God sent to be my Savior. In fact, you could say that phrase instead of the name Jesus Christ if you wanted to, because that is exactly what Jesus Christ means, the one God sent to be my Savior. You could say, I believe in, or am a follower of, or belong to the church of the one God sent to be my Savior. Or you could say, the one God sent to be my Savior is the reason for the season. Or when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you could just say, the one God sent to be my Savior. <laughs> oh, wait, it doesn't work very well, does it? <laughs> Somehow it seems that it's very easy for us to forget who Jesus is. If we know what his name actually means, maybe we can remember better. You see, the name of Jesus actually describes who he is. All the hope you need is right there in his name. Who is Jesus Christ? You act, he's the one God sent to be my Savior. The angels knew who Jesus was right from the start. They told the shepherds exactly who was being born that night. They said, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels were the first to declare that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Not a Christ, but the Christ. Jesus is the only one who can save. By the way, next week we'll finish this series by talking about Jesus the Lord. I know it's the day after Christmas. All the more reason to show up at church, right? Any meaningful Christmas celebration is a celebration of the coming of Christ, the one God sent to be my Savior. He is our great hope, even in the face of the worst things. We must endure on this earth. He is Jesus Christ, after all, which means what? Can you say it with me by now? The one who God sent to be my Savior. One more time. The one who God sent to be my Savior. Let's remember the big question behind this series, the scene from Matthew 16, starting with verse 13. The Bible says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say 
that I am. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. You actually summed it up with one word, Christ. You are the Christ, he said. Peter defined Jesus by what he came to do and also by the one who sent him to do it. It's all right there in his name. Peter says, Jesus, you are the one God sent to be my Savior, the Christ. What is the most important word in the sentence that I'm using to describe Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be my Savior? Really, I think the most important word is Savior. That's the heart of the name Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. This word describes Jesus very well, but there's a bit of a problem with it, isn't there? See, the fact that Jesus came to be your Savior implies something, doesn't it? Something uncomfortable for many people today. There is a sinister insinuation being made by referring to Jesus as the Savior, and some of you are already picking up on it. The implication is that you need to be saved. What? You mean I'm not fine just the way I am? That is correct. You mean it doesn't do anything for me to be true to my own self? That won't save me? Correct. Popular culture will tell you that you are already enough, that you don't need to change, that there's nothing wrong with you, that nothing is broken, that God accepts you just exactly as you are, which is subtly untrue. God does not accept you as you are, but even as you are, he does offer you salvation from yourself, the very nature of which will completely transform your life. Coming to Jesus for salvation means, salvation means you will be changed, not that it's okay to stay the same. And in case you don't think people are saying we don't need a Savior to change us, let me read to you a portion of a viral poem that was going around on social media a couple years ago and probably still is today. And this is being cheered on by, by our culture as if it had come down from heaven. This was posted even by some Christians as if it were gospel truth. And this is only an example. While clips of people crying for joy and smiling with elation come across the screen, and while dramatic music plays, Mr. Adam Roa says, I was who I'd been looking for. And deep in, in, inside my core, I knew it was a time to stop looking for more until I could look through all my fear and look into a mirror and see clearly that the man looking back at me is the only one who can make me happy. I am already enough. I am not any more special or unique than you, and that is why I am here to speak to you. You are already enough. And when you start to see that, you will start to be that. Your world will get brighter, your load will get lighter, and you can see that in life you can be a lover, not a fighter. In that light, you deserve it because you are worth it. And there's no point in letting yourself keep forgetting because no matter what you say or do, you are perfect. And so today, I hope I leave you with a direction correction away from the flaws you see in your reflection. They are flaws to me. They're simply protection against all the doubts you have of your perfection. So start today. Take a good long look in the mirror and say, I am who I've been looking for. Some of you saw all the problems with that poem, but I bet some of you are more like the majority of people thinking it sounds pretty good and somebody probably needs to hear it. The majority of people living today eat this stuff up. 
Now, do you know how I found out about this poem? A pastor posted it. He praised it. He thought it was awesome. I talked with him in private about it. He had some reasoning along the lines of appealing to some of the crowd that he's trying to reach. And I don't want to judge him, but folks, this poem is simply not true. What are the primary messages of this poem? You are enough. You are perfect. You are all you need. This is all somewhat subtly packaged in rhyme that contains a modicum of truth as well, especially in the earlier part I didn't read. And the emotional images make you just feel like it has to be true. It's obviously really positively impacting the people on the screen. But the main message here is the biggest lie that Satan ever tells. The lie that you really don't need a savior. Oh, my friend, that is the lie of all lies. I am aware of the self-loathing Mr. Roa is trying to address. I know about cutting and self-harm and the extremely high rate of suicide in young people, part of which happens because they feel they just can't measure up to magazines and movie stars. I know that self-loathing is an epidemic, um, epidemic among our youth, and I can admire that someone is trying to do something about it. But friend, hear me say what you won't hear from popular culture, which is this, you are not enough. Listen carefully. I can agree that there is a need to ultimately love yourself and accept yourself. There is a need for that emotionally. Self-loathing is a terrible, terrible thing. But hear me say clearly that the path to self-love is not found in self. Neither hope nor a better self-image are found by looking inside or telling yourself that you're enough. You can dig down as deep as you want, and you won't find what you're looking for in yourself. Because the deeper you dig, the more you actually won't like what you find. Until and unless what you find inside is a new life being redeemed and made whole by Jesus, the only one who saves As the Bible puts it, Christ in me is the hope of glory. See, there's only one Savior, and you are not Him. Your hope and your healing and your better self-image are in knowing the love of Jesus Christ and in resting more deeply in His love for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus saves. You've heard the phrase, I'm okay and you're okay. Well, the truth is that you are not okay, and neither am I. We are both totally messed up. None of us are going to make it in the end without a Savior. We don't need to lie to ourselves. We need to be saved. The insinuation of the very name of Jesus Christ is that you and you and you and you and you need to be saved desperately. That's the implication of the name of Jesus Christ. Part of the power in his name is a declaration of our desperation for him. If our culture is not offended enough simply at the name of Jesus, it is because they do not understand what it means. The name of Jesus means we are completely hopeless to save ourselves. We are flawed people needing fixed. We are not enough. 
Let me make this real. It is not okay for someone who defines themselves as gay to have sexual relations with someone of the same sex, even though they define themselves as gay. But wait, it is also not okay for me to sleep with someone other than my wife, even if I would ever desire to do so. In fact, it is not okay even for me to lust after pictures or videos of other women on the internet. Do I have a part of me that desires to do that? Was I probably born with a desire to do that? Can you handle the truth? Yes, I have those desires sometimes. I'm not okay, you see. I am not any more okay than a gay person who desires what God has said is wrong. I desire wrong things, too. We both desire what God said is wrong. If we act on it, that's worse. But even our desires tell us we are not okay, which means that you and I are equally not okay. Heterosexual, conservative or not, I am a man in desperate need of a Savior. I am in desperate need of Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be my Savior. Friends, we all have things about us that are not okay. To thine own self be true, they say. Oh, I think not. You wouldn't want to know me. If I made myself my own truth, I can assure you, this man right here would be utterly overcome by sin and sinful desires, probably living in a destructive, perverted lifestyle without Jesus. Don't think for a moment that your pastor is better than that without his Savior, because I am not. Friends, we have zero hope in ourselves, which is why God had to come down here to offer a fix, a permanent fix, a true fix for our souls. And you see, this message is all contained in the very name, Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior, and we are far from okay without Him. Let's get this settled once and for all. The name of Jesus Christ is not only a solution, but a summary judgment on humanity. That includes me, and it includes you. The gavel slams down, and the jury says, you are each and every one guilty. You're broken. You don't work right. There's something wrong with you. You are one messed up puppy. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we're messed up inside. I don't think Christians today mostly admit this. We rather like to think highly of ourselves and the longer we have been a Christian, especially those of us who were saved as children, I think, the more some of us kind of somewhere deep down think we needed the Savior a little bit less than some of these other people. We fool ourselves. Are you listening to God right now, or is your mind going something like this? Now, wait just a minute. I'm doing pretty well lately. 
I don't, I don't even drink alcohol. I don't use cuss words. I don't do some of the stuff that other people do. I got a good family. I, I, I live in a really nice house. Sometimes I even fight off temptation. I mean, who does that? For crying out loud, I even recycle now. <laughs> I'm really a pretty good guy. Just look at all my stuff. I mean, clearly the favor of God is on my life. Look at the, look at, just still look at the stuff under my Christmas tree. Well, my Christmas tree itself costs $300. Favor, must be favor. Look at my accomplishment. Look at how hard I've worked to get where I am. I served in the military. I help old ladies across the street. I, I'm a good person. Whatever do you mean I'm desperate for a savior? What do you mean I'm broken and inadequate and needing fixed? See, folks, one way or another, most people simply don't think they really need Jesus all that much. Even Christians, but certainly the rest of the world as well, are pretty okay with Jesus being a historical figure or an icon like an elf on the shelf. Now, most people think they need something, lots of things probably, just not really so much Christ. This is not new. Have you ever wondered why Jesus did so much teaching? I mean, why didn't Jesus head straight for the cross and get it over with? That's what he came for, right? He was born to die, the Bible says. So what took him so long? Why did he spend those last three years teaching on hillsides and synagogues, on the streets and the temple? What did Jesus really need to say? Why didn't he go to the cross sooner, since his mission would seem to have been fairly urgent? Well, if you were to boil down all of the teaching of Jesus Christ, you would find that most of it was intended for one purpose. The main point was to show people they needed a Savior. Pick your teaching from Jesus, and the case for needing the Christ is going to be evident. He wanted the people who heard him, and the people who would later read what he said, like us, to see just how hopeless we all are without the one who God sent to be our Savior. Let's look at one of the times when Jesus tried to show the people that they all needed a Savior. From Matthew 5, starting with verse 21, uh, we unpacked this um, in detail during the Sermon on the Mount series. We're just going to look at it briefly today. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stubble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus said that? Yeah. Now, be honest. Be honest. You think you're better than a murderer, right? Most of us think we're better than a murderer or than fill in the blank. How many different things would you actually think you're better than, by the way? I wonder, better than that. 
And I won't lie to you, you are better. Just consider the extremes and be reasonable. You're better than Hitler, I'm, I'm confident. You're better than someone or than some people or maybe even than most people. And somehow, subconsciously, that's part of why you don't think you need a Savior all that much. But Jesus comes along and says, murderer or not, adulterer or not, you are still 100% hopeless. For a long time, Jesus didn't even tell them where they could find hope in him. He just took a lot of time to make sure they knew they were hopeless. Why? Remember our series from the Sermon on the Mount. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because only beggars beg. When we are desperate to be saved, we respond to the Savior. Not exactly the same message as Adam Roa, is it? If you look at a lot of what Jesus taught, you'll see that he basically put everyone on the same level. And you see that in the passage I just read? That's what he was doing. Jesus wanted his audience to have the moment where in deep down inside they would say to themselves, well, I'm totally busted. I mean, that's the kind of reaction Jesus was wanting to produce. Woe is me, I am ruined. That's the reaction we should all have from the teachings of Jesus. He wanted each one of us to realize somewhere down deep in our souls that we have absolutely no chance. Now, by the way, this is not the same as saying that all sin is the same to God, which is a lie that I don't have time to fully debunk today. All sin is absolutely not just the same to God. That's an, that is an errant teaching not found in the Bible. The truth is that God responds quite differently to different sins throughout Scripture, and Jesus flat out said that one sin can be greater than another. But right now the point is that all sin does make you equally as guilty before a holy God. James 2.10 tells us that those who are guilty of breaking one part of God's law are then considered lawbreakers by Him, regardless of what law has been broken. In other words, we all stand guilty before God. Another way of saying this is that even one sin is enough to make you a sinner in desperate need of the Savior. That means that your pastors or whoever you might look up to for godly behavior are just as desperate for a Savior as the worst sinner in history. Because without the Savior, we are all equally unsaved. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to get across in Matthew chapter 5 as well as other places where ultimately he made himself relevant to all people. People needed a Savior. People needed the Christ. All people. Jesus Christ spent most of his teaching time trying to convince people that they were spiritually poor and naked and blind and desperate. Most of them thought they were good to go, so they rejected him and his message. Do you think that still goes on in America at all? And what was Jesus' main message to the culture who thought they didn't need a Savior? Repent and be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. That was Jesus' primary message. Oh, how we need to preach the same message. Repent and be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. And we need to show this generation that salvation happens by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who saves.
Jesus spent a lot of time trying to shock people who thought they were taken care of or just didn't care into understanding their desperate need for a Savior. He tried to get them to see that they didn't need a Savior to save them from the government. As bad as it is, it ain't Caesar, folks. Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say about that. That they didn't need people to save them from even their poverty, almost slavery, under Roman authority. They didn't need to be saved from other people's opinions that, that, that were different than theirs. They felt like a minority. They didn't need to be saved from difficult circumstances, but they were desperate for a savior who could save them from really three specific things. They needed someone to save them from their sin, someone to save them from self, and someone to save them from their sentence. You know, there were going to be three points somewhere. I, I might have set a record for the longest introduction. A preamble, I guess. Many times that's where I actually get said what I'm wanting to say. The points will be short today. Rest of our time, we're going to briefly look at those three perils from which we need Jesus Christ to be Jesus Christ, the one sent to be our Savior. You need to see why you need to be saved, because if you're really going to understand who Jesus is, the goal of this series, then you must also understand how desperately you need him to be who he is. Whether you're already saved or not, you need to have a firm grasp on who Jesus is. And who is Jesus Christ again? Can, is it, can we? Ready? The one God sent to be my Savior. That's what Jesus Christ literally means. And so let's talk about the three things we need to be saved from. First of all, we need to be saved from our sin. We've all heard it, right? Probably most of us, we've heard it all our lives. We need to be saved from our sin. But what does it mean? Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Isaiah told us all about the Christ more than seven centuries before he came. Amazing. Now, something you should know is that prophets would often write in the past tense even while predicting a future occurrence. Let me say that again. They would write in the past tense as if it had already happened, even though they were predicting, predicting something in the future. It was a literary device designed to communicate the certainty that these events would actually happen in due time. The prophet Isaiah wrote this about the Savior to come from chapter 53 of this book, starting with verse, of his book, starting with verse 1. He suffered, talking about the Messiah to come, he suffered and endured great pain for us. But we thought his suffering was punishment from God. He was wounded and crushed because of our sins. By taking our punishment, he made us completely well. All of us were like sheep that had wandered off. We had each gone our own way, but the Lord gave him the punishment we deserved. He was painfully abused, but he did not complain. He was silent like a lamb being led to the butcher, as quiet as a sheep having its wool cut off. He was condemned to death without a fair trial. Who could have imagined what would happen to him? His life was taken away because of the sinful things my people had done. The Lord decided his servant would suffer as a sacrifice to take away the sin and guilt of others. Although he is innocent, he will take the punishment for the sins of others so that many of them will no longer be guilty. The Lord will reward him with honor and power for sacrificing his life. Others thought he was a sinner, but he suffered for our sins and asked God to forgive us. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Incredibly accurate prediction, isn't it? But beyond the amazing detail that Isaiah got right in advance about Jesus' death, there's a theme in this passage that I want us to focus on. All throughout the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we are told of the reason for the Savior. Today, we talk about remembering the reason for the season, but do we remember the reason for the Savior? We need a Savior because we are sinners. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Other than Jesus Christ, there is not, nor has there ever been, <clears throat> one person on this planet who is not tainted by sin. Not Paul, not Peter, not Mother Teresa, not Billy Graham, not the Pope, not even the Virgin Mary. No one. Humanity is fallen. We all have the blood of Adam in our veins. We are not the people God made us to be. We all choose to go our own way, just like sheep without a shepherd, as Isaiah put it. Most of us here probably would admit that we don't always do everything God wants us to do. We don't always follow him. We don't always surrender our lives to be used by him. We don't always do the right thing. That's all sin. And most of us simply know innately that we are guilty Apart from Christ, we are guilty before a holy God. Understand that sin creates a barrier between us and God. This barrier is defined by the unchangeable fact of God's perfect identity. This barrier cannot be dissolved any more than God can cease to exist or cease to be who he is, to be holy. Additionally, if he would allow sin into heaven, that would cause heaven to cease to be paradise, just like the sin ruined the Garden of Eden, eventually destroyed in the flood. Heaven is a perfect place, and it's only for sinless and perfect people, which leaves us all out. That's why without a Savior, we're doomed. Thank God for Christmas. Amen? Thank God for Jesus Christ. Who is he again? Would you say it with me? Jesus Christ is the one God sent to be my Savior. We need to be saved from our sin. And secondly, we need to be saved from self. There's a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman that says this well, and I must say the contrast from the poem I read earlier is pretty interesting. This one speaks truth. It goes like, like this. Who is this angry man I see in the mirror staring back at me? It's a man who's tired, a man who's weak. And it's a man who needs a savior. And who is this fearful little child crying out for home, lost in the wild? With a lonely heart that's fading fast. It's a man who needs a savior. And what is this longing in my soul that I get so scared and angry? I need more than just a little help. I need someone who will save me. And who is this one nailed to a cross who would rather die than leave us lost? He's come to rescue us, come to set us free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, it is Christ the Lord, our Savior. 
Have you taken a good hard look in the mirror lately? Have you considered your inner self? Have you assessed what's going on in your soul? You see, it's when I stop long enough to really take a look at myself, thinking about my conversations, what I've done with my time, what I've put into my mind, what good things I have not done. And when I look into the eyes of God through worship, when I see his holy perfection, his complete authority, that's when he begins to show me the places where I have regained selfish control over my life. And what I see there is not good. It's ugly. I find myself needing fixed. When I really look at myself, that's when I know how much I still need a Savior. Ultimately, I'm saved for eternity, but make no mistake, while I live in this flesh, I need the Savior, as one song put it, to keep saving me. I wish I could tell you, man, I have got it all straight. You know better. Think about how unbelievably selfish I can be when I really look at the ugly side of who I am, the natural side, the selfish side, the, the lustful side of myself that I don't let people see as much as possible. The side of me that fights back with cutting words, that wants to hurt those who hurt me, looks the other way instead of helping someone in need, the side that occasionally even willfully chooses to disobey God. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? The Apostle Paul said that. Not better than him. But he answered his own question with two words. Who will save me from this body of sin and death? Two words, Jesus Christ. When I take an honest look at myself, that's when I know how desperately I need a Savior. Who is this angry man I see in the mirror staring back at me? It's a man who needs a Savior. You see, even those of us who have already been saved need to return to the Savior often. That doesn't mean we need to be saved again because salvation is a one-time deal in terms of your eternal identity and your destination. Salvation is forever the first time, as long as it's for real. And yet most of us know that our old self likes to rise up and knock Jesus off the throne of our hearts. And when that happens, we need our Savior to save us from ourselves once again. Again, as the Apostle Paul put it, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This passage tells us to lay aside the old self and put on the new self, but implied in the context is the fact that we can only do so with the help of our Savior. Jesus lives He's, he's there. He is our helper, and he lives to save us from self daily. We must constantly turn to him to complete the work he started. Look at one other verse about how Jesus saves us from self. Romans 6, starting with verse 3, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When we trust in Jesus as our Savior, our old self basically gets um, sent back to the cross to die. But sometimes a remnant of that old self still wants to set up shop within us. 
So many passages like this one call us to live out the reality of our salvation, but in order to do that, in a sense, we need to return to the cross and seek the Savior once more. The Bible is clear that even after we are saved, we constantly need help from our Savior in the battle against our old self. By the way, this is a big part of what communion is for. See, this is part of why we continue to practice the Lord's Supper, as we will in a moment, to take the juice and the bread, to return to the cross and to remember, to make sure we keep living in the reality that our old self was crucified on the cross with Jesus. Now in Christ, we can live like those who are saved from self. The key point I'm trying to make right now is that even as a believer, you still need a Savior. It's not like you got saved and never need to think about it again. You can't live out your salvation on your own. Go back to the cross as needed. Go back to the Savior on your knees and let him help you leave that old self behind once again. Now, not only do we need to be saved from sin and not only do we need to be saved from self, but we need to be saved from our sentence. From our sentence. Do you remember what God told Adam and Eve would happen if they ate the forbidden fruit? He said they would surely die. Death would be their sentence. They had a death sentence. Let's read it. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. God said the first man and woman would die in the very day they ate the fruit. However, we also know that their physical lives didn't end that day. So what did God mean? Well, that very day and that very moment, they received a death sentence. We do know that they died spiritually on the spot, but also understand that they now faced a physical death sentence to be served later, and all of us share that sentence from the day that we are born. In an instant, mankind fell from eternal paradise with God into loneliness and spiritual emptiness with only death to look forward to. The sentence of death is in addition to the spiritual death we are born into. It's a sentence to the second death the death the Bible later describes as a fiery hell, an eternity separated from God. Hell is the horrific death sentence humanity faces. Oh, how quickly we forget just exactly what it means to have a Savior in Christ. How ungrateful can we be? Never forget that we have been saved from the fires of hell. Now, folks, I don't like this part either. I hate it. I hate it every time God makes me mention hell. I don't want to mention it. I don't like to think about it. I can hardly stand it. But how can I not? How can I not mention it? If I don't mention it, I either don't really believe I've been saved from it, or I don't care enough to tell anyone else. The hard truth is that all of us face an eternal death sentence to be served in hell. That could not be clearer in the Bible. But there is good news. First promise to Adam and Eve on the very day that they sinned. God didn't wait to give them some hope, some good news. He told them about the Savior to come even during sentencing. 
You can find this promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God declared that another man would come, a man who would conquer Satan and the power of death, even though it would cost him greatly to do so. And the implication is that this man, this Savior, would earn for humanity the opportunity to be freed from the terrible sentence of death which they had just received. From the foundational moments of human history, God promised he would send a man to be our Savior. This man would be called the Messiah, the Christ. This man was Jesus. The Bible says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, because of the sin of the first Adam, we're all under a death sentence. But because of the saving work of Christ, the second Adam, we can all be freed from that sentence. As many as will come to him by grace through faith. Who is Jesus? Again, say it with me. The one God sent to be my Savior. I'm not usually fond of paraphrases like the message, but I do like Peterson's wording of John 3.18, which says, Anyone who trusts in Christ is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. This truth is communicated throughout the New Testament. What do you need to do in order to be acquitted? It's right there. To be released from your sentence. According to this verse, what do you need to do? Look at it. It's right there. What do you need to do? Three words. Trust in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the Savior. If he wasn't the Savior, he wouldn't do any good to trust in him. Listen carefully. It goes like this. When you trust in the Savior, he saves you. He's like a life preserver just waiting for you to grab a hold of it, to be grasped. You get that? When you allow the Savior to be your Savior, He saves you. Why? It's who He is. That's what He does. That's what He came for. It's who Jesus is. He is the Savior. So why don't you turn to Him and receive salvation. I love the way Max Lucado put, put it in his book, In the Grip of Grace. He writes, ponder the achievement of God. He doesn't condone our sin, nor does he compromise his standard. He doesn't ignore our rebellion, nor does he relax his demands. Rather than dismiss our sin, he assumes our sin and incredibly sentences himself. God's holiness is honored, our sin is punished, and we are redeemed. God does what we cannot do so we can be what we dare not dream, perfect before God. Perfect. Perfect? Didn't we, wasn't that a problem earlier in the poem we read? It's, the problem is we're not perfect by default. We can be made perfect through our Savior. Jesus who? Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be my Savior. Where would we be without him? This is why it's good to celebrate Christmas. I'm all for celebrating Christmas. Our Savior came down here to save us and understand that the Christ of Christmas knew exactly what he was doing all along. He knew what he was doing and he knew who he was doing it for. Don't let another Christmas go by without receiving the greatest gift that has ever been offered. Receive the gift of Christ by trusting in him to save you today. Let him do what he does. If you haven't trusted in Jesus so that he can be your Savior, you can do it today. Let me help you. Let me just guide you through a prayer. Would you pray with me? If you'd like to receive him as your savior today, you could just pray something like this. I'm just gonna give you an idea of what you could pray. 
if that's what you want, you could just say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not okay. Myself is not okay. And I hear that there's a death sentence on my life. Help. Save me. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, be my savior. I just, I just, I come desperate as a beggar. Save me. Help me. Change me. Let me be saved, not only just for eternity, but so that the rest of my life could be different. I could live like you want me to live. Be my Lord, my King. Be my Savior. Jesus Christ, the one God sent to be my Savior. Today, be my Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.